Welcome to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. If you notice that our tones are not quite as dulcet uh, as you're used to, that's because we both have colds uh, and possibly the flu. So we apologize for the dip in sound quality and professionalism. But our guests today are Amanda Rosho and Eric Frydenborg. Amanda Rosho is an artist based in Los Angeles. She received her BFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and her MFA from the University of Southern California. Recently, her piece, The Character and Shape of Illuminated Things, Facial Recognition, was a part of the show Image Objects, organized by Public Art Fund in New York City. A lot of the current work, regardless of its um, actual physical manifestation, is about um, building these loops, that idea of something originating in one place and kind of um, going through a very long set of kind of um, uh, travels and kind of ending up back in some ways where it started and kind of just following that path. And, um, and so a lot of the work kind of is about, you know, engineering and kind of creating the architecture for those loops. Eric Frydenborg is also an artist based in Los Angeles. He received his BFA from the Maryland Institute College of Art and an MFA from the University of Southern California. Frydenborg's most recent show, an Eric Frydenborg Omnibus, is currently up at the Pit 2 in Glendale, California. I tend to think of trying to achieve something in terms of each body of work being about a really specific kind of object, and I think that um, I've never cared much about the distinctions between sculpture and painting, really. I would think of myself as being reared in, in that kind of a conversation if it's something a little bit more open. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. You can listen to The People on K-Chung, 16.30 a.m., every third Sunday at 3 p.m., or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Do subscribe, rate, and review the show. Yes, please do that. And we're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. Amanda Rosho and Eric Frydenborg, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us here. <laughs> so maybe we could start with... Uh, you, Eric, talking about your show, which is up at The Pit, which is a gallery in Glendale, which is a city near Los Angeles. <laughs> with, with which you are intimately familiar. Oh, very well. Sounds like. <laughs> yes. I'll spend some time in Glendale. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, right before Thanksgiving, I had a show which is called An Eric Frydenborg Omnibus. Uh, it opened at The Pit in Glendale, which is uh, run by the artists Devin Oder and Adam Miller. Um, it's a great space and my, my show is actually at their new space, which is adjacent to the original gallery, which is called the pit two. Um, and it runs all the way through January. So it's up for a little while. Oh, great. So this show yeah. will be out. People can still go. Yeah. Go see it. That's great. Yeah. Excellent. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Total plug. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we do. Exactly. Is this the inaugural show for the pit two? It is indeed the inaugural show all for right. the pit two. Um, yeah. And, you know, they've been running uh, the space for, I believe, a little over a year. And they've done a lot of really great shows, mostly group shows at the original space. And um, I think they had just a serendipitous moment where um, they had a neighbor who was just like storing a car in the space next door. And they just like he cleared out and it uh, it worked out. So. Yeah, it's been a really good, uh, really good setup over there. Yeah, and that Amanda, you want to chime in on the show? Tell yeah. us about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I guess uh, just talking about Adam Miller and Devin as well. Like, um, uh, 
I well, I actually I, I really admire the setup that they have actually there at the pit. Um, they're artists themselves, and the space is so this is inadvertently a plug for them too. But um, they uh, they are artists, and so it is their studio, and the the gallery space is actually um, built right onto um, uh, their studio spaces, and it's a really um, it has a really nice kind of collaborative vibe. I mean, it, it's um, they take it very seriously, and the space is um, very well appointed. Um, but it's also kind of um, has a sort of a family feeling, and so there's something really kind of um, nice about the events there and the the shows they put together, which tend to be, um, you know, um, very you know, like I said, they take it very seriously. But it's also, um, you know, sort of a network of uh, basically it's kind of diagramming a community to some degree, which I uh, really respect. So. Um, and yeah, the, the pit too, the new space is also uh, really great because it's a small, literally a one car garage and, um, it's kind of a beautiful little spot for a solo show. And their plan I think is to do, um, you know, solo projects in there, whether it's, you know, a singular object. And so, uh, so yeah, so Eric's show kind of, um, you know, set the bar, I think, which is fun. One of the other great things, uh, that Adam and Devin have been doing is they do publications, uh, with every single show, they have a risograph printer. And so they do these small run publications, uh, kind of zine type, uh, little books. And we had an opportunity to do one for the show, which I'm really excited about as well. Um, so, you know, I think, I think that's fed into, um, a big part of their programming over there actually has been doing these, these, uh, these books. So, and what, what was your publication, Eric? Um, the publication was essentially um, a collation of a lot of the source imagery that I've used um, that has fed into the kind of new sculptural work that is represented in the show. Um, we also, uh, they tend to uh, have artists invite a writer to do a piece, and I was able to write my fr- uh, invite my friend Sam Davis to do a little piece of writing. Um, which winds up repeating throughout the publication. So, um, so yeah. And the source imagery, am I remembering this right? It's uh, like pulp novel illustrations, right? Essentially, I, I mean, that's kind of the design reference. The actual uh, source material comes from, um, essentially is, is pulled from old uh, illustrated encyclopedias, scientific textbooks. Um, it actually comes from very... Um, kind of objective source material and then it's kind of reworked into these sort of almost uh, science fiction covered designs right. uh, references to those so yes yeah, so there's sort of a nice um kind of tie into the idea of making a publication for the exhibition since um literally the source material comes from books and the references are kind of you know based on these strategies design strategies of these book covers so there's a nice kind of nesting of those kinds of uh, sensibilities and also the um, I don't kind of meta languages of you know um, making a book of book covers, etc. So there's a there's a nice. Uh, it was just sort of a sensical um, project and in many ways. It was very symmetrical and lined up really well. Um, so yeah, that worked out really nicely. And you know the the books are um, they're rise of print books, so they're um, they kind of feel they have sort of a punk rock vibe. And so there's a nice kind of combination of like uh, that spirit, and then um, you know then also kind of you know, again, this kind of, um, also ambitious programming, which is, I think it's a really nice kind of combination of sensibilities. I was excited to go in there and not, um, and not see another show of abstract painting. No, (laughs) no offense. All abstract painters. You've had your day. Yeah. (laughs) And, Um, and the, the pieces in your show are, there's like, um, what, five or four, four. Yeah. They're like large sculptural objects. I kind of, I saw the show and I kind of initially 
I think because I'm trained to like art. So it's painting, right? <laughs> like that is all art, right? It's paintings on the wall. And they have this kind of feel of being like, and I don't want to misdescribe them incorrectly, but to me, initially I was, I read them as paintings because they are hung like they are square blocks kind of things that are hung in a certain way, but they're actually very sculptural. They have these alien heads, right? like kind of sculptural, sculpted out off the surface. But tell me about the, uh, the actual objects. Well, this series of work essentially started out almost like um, that I, I would describe them as almost being related to like a diorama presentation in the sense that uh, the initial group of them that I did for a show in uh, Chicago earlier this year um, involved standing pieces that were in front of these kind of monolith forms, um, at which repeats in this show. Yeah. Um, but I decided to sort of... Uh, almost just compress the space of those things. And, uh, you know, so the ones that hang on the wall become almost like bas reliefs. Uh, the standing one, I think a little bit still, you know, retains a sense of like, you know, capital S sculpture a little bit more, but I like the sort of confusion of that space. The fact that you're dealing with something dimensional, you're also dealing with something extremely frontal and graphic pictorial. Um, so it is funny though, because I do, because I know you so well and I know your work um, so deeply, and, and and we often describe our kind of collaborative uh, relationship, which is uh, uh, as as sort of being fluent in each other's languages. And um, uh, I know so well that you identify explicitly as a sculptor, and so the idea sure. of uh, making something that was wall bound was almost like uh, an interesting kind of. Uh, shift in a way because it does whether you like it or not enter the space of painting um, right. on some level even though there's you know very little uh, that is actually um, paint about it except for uh, probably the screen printing and the and the surface treatment and like everything is explicitly object hood right so I mean I think for for a long time I tend to think of trying to achieve something in terms of each body of work being about a really specific kind of object. And I think that um, I've never cared much about the distinctions between sculpture and painting, really. I mean, I, I guess I would identify as a sculptor in the sense that I'm making, you know, dimensional forms or something. So it's like that seems like an accurate description. But otherwise, I've never, you know, I don't think. I think coming up and the, you know, I don't know, my, my sort of early imprint as an artist, it was like those those distinctions were less meaningful at the time when I was, you know, say when I was going to, to undergrad and, and things. I think that um, I would think of myself as being reared in, in that kind of conversation of something a little bit more open. And I, I think you would probably agree mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. your, you know, your, mm -hmm. your work reflects that I think right. as well. So. Right. And I think but but I but I guess I think we both on some level engage it with some of the meaning meaning the medium of painting. I think we both engage it in our own way, um, uh, you know. Admittedly, a little bit um, of an interrogation or maybe an, an antagonizing of it. <laughs> I think <laughs> on in, a in, bad your, day. in your case, <laughs> yeah. In, yeah. Well, probably probably more overtly in your yeah. case. Yeah, I for think. sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and then that said, there's so much. Um, I mean, one of the things that I love about Eric's show is that. Um, that there's actually so much kind of sublimated, sublimated labor in the pieces that you wouldn't even believe how much work goes into making those pieces. And a lot of it operates in kind of a really um, obvious way as far as the labor. And then some of it is, I think, um, uh, there's a mystery to sort of the um, the actual forms. Like people are always asking, like, what is that? What is that, that made of? Yeah, you know, that like was, that was yeah. honestly my first yeah, reaction yeah. coming into the space because there there's something really. I don't. They just they're very confusing somehow. Mm -hmm. I was like, is this a painting on canvas? It's not that. 
No. You know, it's like right. very not that, but you <laughs> <Right>. know, <laughs> right. but um, but that sublimated labor is yeah. that that's what makes that feeling like they right. look yeah. simple and clean, simple maybe not, but they look real clean and tight mm-hmm. and let and if you can just sort of feel that there was and I don't know yes. what the process was and we don't have to get into it, but I'm sure it was <laughs> yeah it was a lot of work and it's just kind of steaming off of the objects you know. Well, I think that one of the things that's important to me with the work is that um despite the fact that sort of the encounter with them has a sense of kind of like, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, they tend to be sort of enigmatic forms in the sense that you're not exactly sure what you're looking at, although there's a sense of familiarity. I think that the way that I build the objects has to do with like the source material that's very objective and very readable. And I think that like pushing things that are, you know, kind of nameable objects uh, or nameable images through this process of kind of um, encrypting them and kind of mashing them up into these other forms, you're presented with this thing that leaves you, you know, with, with a, a kind of a large question when you're encountering it. And I think that like that, that sense of like suspended questioning is something that I'm really interested in being maintained in the work. So. Yeah. And for me as a viewer, I mean, not just, um, I, I am, I am obviously biased on some, on some level. Um, but not with just with your work. I mean, for me as a, as a viewer, I mean, as somebody who makes things, um, uh, um, when I'm in the role of being a viewer, for me, one of the most productive sensations that I can encounter is not knowing what I'm looking at. Um, and so I think, yeah, for me, your show really, or your work in general does that in a way that I think is, um, you know, ask those questions and asks you to, to, you know, spend time to sort of interpret, not just, um, you know, uh, what's happening with the piece as an operation, but like what you're actually looking at. Like to me, that's always exciting and well, always an important um, experience as a viewer. And, and, and I think the, the, um, the lack of sort of medium specificity that we were talking about a minute ago, I think, I think is, is a part of that experience for me. I exactly. think the idea that each thing that you're, um, you know, that, that you're accomplishing with the work has to do with its own set of terms and not to do with, you know, I I mean, certainly there's a precedent for using all, all different kinds of combinations of materials and modes, but I think the idea that you're making something that stands on its own terms, as opposed to, you know, like the terms of painting per se, or even the terms of sculpture or whatever is, is pretty critical. So Mm -hmm. I think it's also worthy of talking about like the role of fiction. I mean, the, the, the work, like, um, I mean, you have a writing practice that's maybe less known than your art practice, but it is an important part of your sensibility as an artist, both as somebody who, um, re- as a reader, you're a, a voracious mm-hmm. reader, but also sure. a writer. And I think that that sense of not just fiction, but the idea of language in the work, like extends to the materiality, extends to a lot of the, um, de- de- decision-making as far as the forms. And I think that, um, that becomes an interesting thing where, you're presenting us with a set of um, like a lexicon to kind of encounter as a viewer. And I think that um, um, again, for me that, that uh, opens up all of these different synapses that maybe wouldn't be present in, in sort of something that um, is more immediate or, um, you know, has a sort of del- more direct delivery system um, uh, through its materiality or, mm-hmm. or, or otherwise. And I feel like there's another element. Um, there were that you also have these. Like there was an airline ticket that had been blo- mm-hmm. that's like blown up, sure. um, and just kind of draping over the back of one, mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah. And I mean, I think in in the write up at the pit, it was described as almost like a bookmark or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, I the I I mean that's another way that language or text gets in there, but in this kind of like you know toss away like kind of. Sure. You know, manner. Yeah. Well, it's funny because the the work, um, the other aspects of the work, I think, tend to be really 
hermetic by design. And I think that, you know, the, the work, you could argue that it is designed in such a way that it keeps you at arm's length. And I think that there's also a degree to which, because of the way that things are constructed, even though the source material for these things are, you know, coming from things that are, that everyone would kind of understand, it's like they're intentionally obscured, I think, to a degree. And one of the things that I came upon while starting to make the work was like wanting to feel like there was a little bit of a moment where sort of reality crept back into the work in a really specific way. So actually those pieces are truly are, are uh, they're scans of actual bookmarks, things that I, I have in books in my own library that I've pulled out and, and scanned and, and reintroduced. So it's like, Thanks. so it's almost like a, a, a moment for sort of like, you know, objective reality to, to be like very directly included in the work. So. And to quite literally fracture the narrative the way a mm-hmm. bookmark does right. in a book. Right, right. right. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so great. Um, yeah, I think that um, those have this beautiful like kind of, uh, uh, role in the pieces that um, they kind of pollute the sort of purity of what you uh, sort of see as the logic of maybe the the, the initial piece. Like they pr- provide this intentional disruption um, by your own hand, which I think is a really deft um, kind of operation in the work that um, also gives it uh, like another sort of material kind of snag, right, for you to kind of as as a viewer to kind of um, have another moment of 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 uh, of questioning um yeah so i i love those those are like for me the cherry <laughs> and the sunday <laughs> you're listening to the people on k-chung 1630 a.m i'm matthew timmons and i'm ben white you can find us on itunes by searching for the people radio so please take the time to subscribe rate and review the show we're also on stitcher and soundcloud at soundcloud.com backslash insert blanc And the SoundCloud page also features additional recordings from various readings and performances uh, related to Insert Blanc Press, and I highly suggest you check it out. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page. And now let's return to our conversation with Amanda Rosho and Eric Frydenborg. So, um, Amanda, you had uh, one of the first large-scale kind of figurative pieces that you've made uh, featured in Sculpture or Get the Fuck Out, curated by Charlie White at Francois Jabouille Gallery uh, several months ago. And uh, it seemed like this piece was a little bit of a departure at the time and yet kind of ties into some of the other translated works that you've done uh, that have kind of pulled things out of the public sphere and sort of... Um, maybe um, translated one or two elements of them that might have been more legible into something that's like maybe a little bit more mysterious, which kind of relates back to what we were just talking Mm -hmm. about. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, yeah. So this piece uh, uh, was a large-scale fabricated sculpture with a textile element. And um, yeah, this was a super fun one to do. And I think that um, it it, um, introduced some kind of uh, useful... Uh, disruptions to the things that I was making um, and also some and was sort of tied to a bunch of other things I was making at the time on some level but yes it was kind of in a way the first time I had made this freestanding sculpture that was in the ground um, in space going back to you know how we self-identify as (laughs) Um, but um, yeah so the piece was was actually um, very specific to the exhibition and that's something that um, whenever possible I try to do so even though this was a group exhibition. I wanted to make something sort of specific for it. And, you know, the piece actually was something that I had envisioned um, and sort of had in my back pocket from 
um, several years prior, um, which happens sometimes, right? Like I'll kind of um, uh, engineer something and the sequence of, of uh, reception or the, the sequence of um, putting it out in the world is, is, is there just, there's a timing to it. And so there, it just wasn't quite ready. <laughs> it hadn't quite baked all the way. Um, but no, I think it, it had to have a, a, a context that made sense. And initially I'd thought about making the piece for the context of a solo exhibition and then decided to kind of edit it. And um, I'm glad I did because I think that um, the Francois Jevely exhibition provided a perfect context for the piece. And so as soon as um, I got the invitation to the show from Charlie White, um, we were having a conversation about kind of his premise of the show and his kind of intention, which largely kind of hinged on the idea of, um, or completely hinged on the idea of uh, women sculptors. And, um, and so I knew that um, immediately I wanted to say something that had a complexity, um, uh, addressed that complexity, um, both in terms of my own role um, in that conversation, um, uh, in which he had sort of positioned me as sort of a middle um, mid, I was like the, represented the middle generation of this exhibition that he had produced. Um, there was sort of a younger group of women and then uh, Andre Zatel sort of represented a slightly older generation. And so I, I provided this kind of middle ground. And so I felt like I, bear, I, I was a lot of, had a lot of responsibility, <laughs> um, but I also wanted to make something that really, like I said, specifically kind of addressed some of these ideas. And so um, I'll just describe the piece a little bit um, just to uh, uh, describe what it is. Um, so it actually originated from a, uh, a, a phone photograph <laughs> that I shot in 2010 in Miami, um, one of the times that we were down there for one of the art fairs. And, you know, most likely was taken, you know, stumbling around tipsy at three in the morning or something. <laughs> but basically the image um, just captured a mannequin in, through a storefront window uh, that had a retail display of a kind of cascade of black thongs that went down the sort of body of the mannequin. And I took a photograph of the this moment. Um, oh, and I should mention that the um, the the underwear, the thong underwear, contained um, uh, various um, kind of offensive statements. <laughs> um, sort of a slew of misogynist and, in some cases, kind of racist, problematic. Just because humans are cool and capitalism is cool. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Some dark, some dark sure. stuff, right? And I think at the time, um, and this is something I do, you know, as a and and most of us do, so it's not unique to me, but. Um, is use my you know my my camera as a note taking device and I've done this like prior to the phone being um, part of our everyday lives so this is something that I know has been an impulse for a long time but um, part of me thought I need to capture this um, and make something from this at some point um, and so um, what the sculpture actually is is an enlarged version of literally what you see in the photograph so. Um, if you're looking at the piece, the piece is a figurative mannequin um, made out of fiberglass that's been upscaled uh, roughly, I would say, uh, maybe 200%, a little bit more maybe. Um, and um, it's literally cropped um, just above the waist and just below the knee, um, which depicts uh, the actual crop of the photograph. Um, so the so the sculptural kind of uh, identity of the piece is, is based on... Uh, you know, the limitations of the photograph. And this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time and doing in the work, which is uh, mining images for um, uh, dimensional possibility, but also kind of just thinking about what we can access through a picture. So um, I worked with um, uh, a friend of mine who is now a longtime collaborator, who is a special specialty props uh, fabricator, mostly for Hollywood and uh, TV and film. 
Um, but he's somebody who I've made, um, now maybe 15 (laughs) projects with, um, over the years. And he's been a close friend, but also, um, you know, uh, again, a collaborator at this point. And we produced this, um, replica of a mannequin. So we found this actual mannequin from, uh, I found an identical mannequin at a display store um, near our studio downtown. And we took a sort of a translation from that. Um, so the pieces, uh, was originally, um, hand carved from observation, um, I'm getting a little off track and getting too much into the process, but um, I'll bring it back in, I promise. <laughs> um, uh, and that was kind of an important thing because one of the things I wanted to do with the piece um, is to speak to um, obviously some kind of references in classical sculpture. Um, so if you think of um, you know various references, um, that particularly because parts of the body were missing, um, there was an interesting kind of correlation there between that and say Venus or you know, name one. Um, um, but also thinking about the sort of narrative of figurative sculpture, since this was a new realm for me, particularly in L.A., I was thinking about some references like um, uh, Charlie Ray's Fall 95. Is that 95 or 91? I always get the numbers mixed up. Um, obviously, um, various Kuhn's iterations. Um, uh, I was thinking about this particular uh, uh, Oldenburg proposal um, for a public sculpture that was never made that was just a pair of knees. Um <laughs> And uh, that are truncated at the top, um, and it only exists in its cat, right? So um, anyway, so there were some references like that that sort of made me think about, okay, this would be appropriate for this exhibition, thinking about inserting my own gaze into the narrative of, of figurative sculpture that has been, in general, male-dominated, and, um, and, and kind of confusing the gaze. And so what I should explain is that with the piece, the text is actually removed. And what I did with the, the textiles, which... Um, which I made by hand are, um, so there's a set of seven thong panties <laughs> and they cascade down the piece. Um, and they go from, uh, uh, they, they create a grayscale from black to white, top to bottom. So what I did was I kind of removed that text. And what I was thinking about with that piece was really, um, a number of things, but, um, you know, again, this idea of like translating, uh, the objecthood that I could access through this image at this moment of, of capturing this kind of, you know, um, bizarre cultural uh, moment of like uh, uh, this sort of strange moment of expression within this retail display, (laughs) Um, but also kind of extracting all of the things that created that problematic and just kind of looking at the idiosyncratic kind of form of it. And so the grayscale kind of created this like super formal just um, justification for that scaling that was located in the, in the sort of um, arrangement. also, the, one of the, <laughs> unfortunately, um, one of the pieces of text on one of the underwear um, said, once you go black, you never go back, which is, again, deeply unfortunate. Um, but um, I, I truncated a piece of that text um, to utilize for the title, um, which out of context, if you don't know that, it's a little bit bewildering, and that was the hope. Um, so this, the piece is called Untitled Sculpture, Once You Go Black. Um, so obviously you have this grayscale that's going up to black. Um, so it just became this like way of um, editing this moment, this found moment, um, and bringing it into this kind of, uh, in some ways, provocative uh, presentation still, but at the same time evacuated of all of that stuff. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the basic kind of description of that work. And what ended up happening is, um, which um, was interesting, an interesting component, is that, you know, the, the image um, or the piece originated in an image and it ended up being kind of heavily disseminated. Um, highly through Instagram. Highly, yeah. highly, yeah. highly yeah. IG'd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a verb. Um, and um, and there's a part of me that really loves that and um, 
you know, was aware of, of, uh, how that would play out, not necessarily knowing exactly how that would play out, but, but thinking about, um, uh, it as an artwork being disseminated in its, you know, mostly through pictures, um, which is sort of how we encounter most things these days. Um, uh, well, I think that's yeah. a, I, I think that's a natural segue into a question about, um, the project project that you did with the public art fund in New York. Yeah. Um, and generally speaking, I think that this body of work for you represents something that's a little bit different than, you know, you have an incredibly diverse practice, but I think that um, what these pieces represent to me, what I see in them has to do with this sort of monumentalizing of kind of unlikely observations, things that you would not expect to see treated with at, you know, sort of a heroic scale or heroic materiality and this sort of, um, the the sort of exchange between an object and an image that as you were just describing sort of maybe begins in the world of images kind of gets pulled through into the world of lived experience and then maybe winds up living in its afterlife mostly as an image again yeah yeah absolutely yeah and um yeah so just to describe that project i mean i think that's exactly right i think that um a lot of the current work regardless of its um, actual physical manifestation is about um, building these loops that, um, like what you just described, that idea of something originating in one place and kind of um, going through a very long set of kind of um, uh, travels and kind of ending up back in some ways where it started and kind of just following that path. And um, and so a lot of the work kind of is about, you know, engineering and kind of creating the architecture for those loops. And so um, so the, uh, the sculpture I just described kind of does that in its own way and kind of brings that, you know, back around and the public sculpture, um, you know, it's kind of explicitly about that. So, um, I should describe it a little bit just quickly, just, um, uh, to make some sense out of it. <laughs> um, but, uh, in 2013 I did, uh, I was invited to do, um, uh, what was my first public sculpture at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, um, for their plaza space, which is, um, um, you know, directly in front of the museum. And um, I should just mention, you know, prior to this, I'd been working with scale and scale is something I've been employing as a device for a very, very long time and an operation. Um, and so this invitation kind of came, um, you know, embedded in the context of my use of scale and um, which, um, you know, initially, um, you know, made a lot of sense. <laughs> I'd been making th big things, you know, for a while. Um, and and so upon getting this invitation to do something outdoors, I was really thinking about, um, of, of course, it felt like, uh, right, that's a, a natural fit. And then I realized quickly as I started to really put my brain on task that um, it was a totally different assignment, and um, which was great and is great and continues to sort of resonate in the work I'm doing now. Um, and the, 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 the differences in the assignment um, is that scale is expected outside. Um, and so... I realized very quickly, you know, that um, what I'd been doing for so long with scale was really about this idea of he a heightened intimacy with the objects I was upscaling um, and to kind of talk about it as a method of amplification um, to kind of like give you um, like a very um, uh, a sense of closeness to that thing and also to literally perform my intimacy with that thing by understanding it totally by, you know, recreating it anatomically kind of uh, thing. Um, 
so anyway, so making something outside became a big problem, um, a challenge. And I realized, well, I have to attack this in a very different, <laughs> through different means than um, the idea of making something that responds to interior spaces and to the expectation that is um, assigned to rarefied spaces of presentation in galleries and museums, interiorly, interior, whatever that word is. Interiorly? Do fix that in post. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, okay, so, so quickly what the, what the piece is, uh, what the piece at the MCA is, and the reason I'm describing that is that the Public Art Fund is another version of, of, of the same sculpture with a, with a, uh, a change. Um, so um, it's based on a, uh, again, a found photograph, <laughs> um, this time from a, um, a lighting, an amateur fo uh, photo uh, textbook from 1980, and uh, the book was created by this guy named David Brooks, who was a commercial photographer. And one of the chapters in the book is mostly about studio lighting. Um, uh, and one of the chapters in the book was called uh, The Character and Shape of Illuminated Things. And um, I, of course, completely stole that directly out of there for the title of the piece. Um, but what the, the chapter was, was um, he had set up a vignette in his studio of a cube and a sphere and a mannequin head. And then he painted them 18% gray. And then he photographed, he made 10 photographs, original photographs that um, kept all of the objects in a static location and he shifted the light for each picture to kind of demonstrate how you could, um, you know, um, you know, change the quality and the mood of the photo, the photo based on, um, shifts in studio lighting. And I'd been, um, obsessed with this group of pictures for a long time because, um, uh, uh I was just really attracted to, um, the idea that, you know, this group of objects was an incredibly simplified version of anything you'd encounter with your camera and by extension, anything you'd ever see, right? So it's, it's almost like this completely um, distilled version of, of a still life of the world, <laughs> like planar surfaces, figurative surfaces, round surfaces, like yeah. if you had to just completely, you know, um, reduce it. And um, there's something kind of bombastic and, um, uh, uh, and, and, universal about that that I loved um, and also thinking about the light source shifting um, as I started thinking about this public sculpture this became the perfect subject for the piece because I realized well first of all um, one of the problems besides scale that I was encountering was this idea of you know what can I monumentalize in this fashion because doing this piece was about creating a monument and um, it felt like the subject any subject that I could pick was not going to quite strike this tone that I wanted. And I realized, oh, well, these objects are placeholders and stand-ins for everything. So I can kind of pull these into this site and create a monument to the idea of everything, right? So it just became this um, um, piece that was almost about uh, the idea of making a public sculpture <laughs> as well, right? Um, I was also really excited about making objects. And for a long time, I've been excited about making objects that are um, photogenic, meaning um, uh, self-conscious as photographic subject. And so these also um, immediately made sense as far as the um, putting something in the public sphere um, because I knew um, not that the piece is about social media, but that that was going to be a heavy component in the sort of reception and the consumption of the piece. Um, and so I decided to push that a little bit and I added this large-scale color card, which is a color calibration card you use in studio photography. And we put that into the vignette of those objects, which were made extremely large scale. The mannequin head was 25 feet. And, um, and what happened was thereby anybody who was viewing the piece um, and photographing the piece, first of all, um, the sun started to play the role of the studio light. So every time the light would shift during the day, the piece would start to kind of 
recreate the moments that were kind of in the origin images, but also anybody who took a picture started to become implicated in playing a role in recreating all those pictures. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was really exciting to make that. <laughs> and speaking of heavily Instagrammable, it was like just this kind of absurd <laughs> deluge of pictures on um, Instagram and Twitter, etc. Anyway, so that piece was up for a year and um, I was really proud of it and um, um, just um, had this kind of an amazing experience of also um, realizing that um, so much of the work is about uh, a viewer's role in the in the work and that um, what this did is um, it created this moment where everybody who had a moment of subjectivity with the piece um, could concretize that that subjectivity into an image, upload it, and then I could archive it. <laughs> yeah. And that also I could be in touch with that person. So it was almost like high-fiving every single person that, <laughs> you know, it's just this great feeling and, um, and very different than sort of the sensation of putting things in um, exhibition spaces where you have, frankly, an elitist kind of filter that, um, uh, you know, only allows a certain... Um, set of eyes on things right and and people really do uh like believe public like public people move through public space in a way that they have accessibility to these things they did not feel um they felt you know totally comfortable to like do all these ridiculous things um stand all over it you know do stuff touch and it. touch yeah. it yeah yeah exactly and um and I love that. And so um, coming out of that project, and I promise I'll kind of wrap it up and let anyone get a word in edgewise, um, <laughs> uh, uh, I got another invitation to do another public project, and it became very clear that um, what would be interesting is to do a version of this piece because the premise of the Public Art Fund show was really thinking, it was called Image Object, and all of the work in the show in very different ways was looking at ways in which photography and sculpture have a dialogue. Um, some of it was coming from kind of a much younger kind of millennial generation who was kind of looking at um, um, digital dissemination and sort of like um, many different kind of um, angles. Um, so you had kind of a wide generation of people addressing this issue. And um, I realized, well, one of the things that's exciting about this original picture uh, or sculpture is that it comes out of analog photography, but its current life is digital. And um, we started to think about, well, how can you speak to something that has a digital afterlife, like can make <laughs> something that is um, self-referential to this former piece. Um, and so what we did was um, I recreated that vignette, um, scaled, scaled down, still quite large scale, it's about 12 feet this time, um, for um, a, a site in the park. And um, one of the things I realized <laughs> was that, um, you know, there is a natural impulse to photograph a figure. Um, and so the majority of the pictures that were coming out of the initial sculpture were of the mannequin head in the face and people were kind of saying like, oh, I saw your head sculpture or I saw your, I saw the bust that you put out there. You know, like there's this like, in like a populist sense, like, you know, that was like the shorthand for the piece. And so I started thinking how funny this was and realized that many of the pictures that I was even taking of the piece, um, my, uh, my phone and my devices would bring up the facial recognition box on the, on the work as I would photograph it. So what I did was we, we made a version of the pieces. It's all the same, same objects. Um, they're made from 3D scans, so it's digital files. Um, um, not 3D printed, but 3D milled um, to make molds. <laughs> um, and we recreated the facial recognition box in neon on the piece. So what happens is when you encounter the piece in the second version, you walk into um, a situation where the piece predetermines your viewership. And um, there's a kind of a funny moment that happens when you go, to, excuse me, to hold your um, camera up to the piece. Uh, 
it actually brings the box up again. So there's this like redundancy. And for me, this is this moment of like reaching through kind of the, the kind of um, experience or the space between myself and a viewer again, and kind of like having this little point of connection, right? Like all of a sudden you're just aware that you're looking and that's, that's really it. You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're also on Stitcher and SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash insertblanc. That SoundCloud page also features additional recordings and various readings and performances associated with Insert Blanc Press, so you should check that out. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page. Now back to our conversation with Amanda Rosho and Eric Frydenborg. So Eric and Amanda, you guys are both artists. You share studio space, but have you guys ever actually collaborated on sculptural pieces or anything like that? We should also particular? say that you collaborate in life as partners. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's sure. right. Exactly. Um, yeah, you know, what's interesting is that uh, that's exactly like a perfect description of it. I think that uh, like our lives are entirely entwined. We share a home, we share our studio, and we are with each other for the most part with exceptions, um, 24 hours a day. <laughs> uh, but we often, we you know, occasionally do something without each other, but uh, most of our time is spent together. And so I think that, um, uh, but uh, that said, um, even though both of us have sort of a, you know, a pretty steady stream of production, we've never, I, to my memory, have made anything that had both of our names on it in an uh, objective fashion. Is that right? I would describe our... Uh, our relationship as cooperative as opposed to collaborative <laughs> mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. because I think we're actually extremely cooperative with one another and supportive but um, but yeah it's never resulted directly in making works that we would both attach our names to exactly uh, exactly we do make the bed together well that's yeah that's work yeah yeah, yeah. when I met him uh, when I met Eric uh, I should say maybe a little bio info is that interesting uh, we met in graduate school uh, at USC um, circa 2004 is that right that's right <laughs> and uh and uh kind of it we've just been together ever since pretty much but um but uh but yeah i just as a funny a funny little side story one of the first things i, I noticed about him is that he makes his bed every morning and i i took i was like note to self this guy's got his shit together little did this you is know. gonna work out <laughs> to me that was so civilized you know, it was like, I was basically a wild animal. And in that way, like our lives are very funny because I think we're extremely different human beings. Um, but I think that actually creates like uh, a super uh, functional balance. I so say. they're not being a moment of actual collaboration, you know, both names on the thing. I, I take it that that's not intentional. It just that's the way that your relationship works out as people and as working artists together. Well, yeah. I, th- I think the thing that's so interesting is uh, I think people have remarked on the points of overlap between Amanda's and my work over the years. And I, and I, I see those things. And I think that uh, maintaining these sort of individually driven projects has been a big part of um, what actually probably keeps the relationship balanced in a really strong way. I think that um, th- there's no one that, you know, I can talk to as directly about what I do uh, with you know, as much possibility of the kind of input that I need to kind of sustain it as I can with Amanda. So it's like that, that in and of itself is 
tantamount to collaboration in some ways, I think. So Yeah, but. I think it's our moment of our one moment of um of separation, which I think is necessary to to sort of sustain kind of our health, you know. Um that said I know lots of people who collaborate directly and live together and it works out fine. But I think for us, um yeah, it's how we kind of maintain this kind of like uh balance of energies somehow. Um that said we're always up in each other's shit. Like we're not um you know, we're not like you know, this is mine and this, you know, like we're just completely entwined, you know, physically our, our spaces are next to each other and in the same building and our offices, you know, we share that and we share a wood shop and we share animals and we share materials and all of that thing. But, um, but yeah, I think when it comes to putting things out in the world, I think it's the moment where we sort of have our autonomy and it gives us some sanity within the relationship. Right. So you're developing individual artistic languages like on your own but obviously there you're also developing one sort of together but making separate separate work so mm-hmm. what is, could you describe that like where that language overlaps like where it bleeds into the other's work hmm. yeah that's does that interesting. happen sure it must well i think that that one of the things that we wind up talking about is the motivation for making things a lot and i think that weirdly that winds up probably being the the point upon which we spend the most time conversing. I think that there's probably more uh, conversation around sort of motivations and purposes for making things and sort of what, uh, you know, what we're after essentially individually and and together in the things that we're making than there is, um, you know, specifically driving at trying to, uh, you know, figure out how to make something as a duo or something like that. So, I mean, this may be reiterating the same thing that we said before, but yeah. I, I don't know if, how you would. Um, I think the things that we share most intimately are, uh, or, or the, the, the biggest point of overlap is like an intern, a sense of an internal ethic with the work that doesn't necessarily manifest in any particular kind of visuality or materiality. Although there are moments I think in some of Eric's work and some of my work that you can see like a a glimmer of maybe his voice that has come through and vice versa. We've certainly influenced each other um, Mm -hmm. in numerous ways over the years. And I think um, you can probably trace that in some like nuanced ideas of uh, arrangement and placement and certain things like that. We both share a desire uh, or, or an interest in display and in sort of self-consciousness of presentation, things like that. But I think the thing that we actually share that is mo- most significant is a sense of like an internal sense of integrity for the work and sort of an ethic that we both kind of care very much about that has to do with um, not just a work ethic, but it's sort of a... Um, upholding a sort of like uh conceptual integrity to all of the work and um and also we're both materialists so we 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 like to make things all the time like we like suspending our energy in the act of making is really important and it's not just about keeping busy it's about that that's how meaning is made i think for both of us in our own way so would that connect up with like what you were saying eric earlier about talking about the motivations behind you know push continuing on like making work and yeah what is that conversation what, around what, motivation yeah, that you guys have that's interesting to me i want to hear about that mm. well i would say that you know ever since i've known amanda i think that she has always driven me to be uh to to be as rigorous as possible in thinking about the motivations for making things once again and and you know the the reason for doing what you're doing like un- unpacking it to the degree that you're, you know, really looking at all of the components of what you're trying to make. And you're, you know, thinking about, like, why am I doing this thing? And, and what's the impact of it going to be? And I think that, um, you know, 
I, I think Amanda is the kind of person that that can't stop herself from doing that. I think her brain works that way, and 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 I think that you know that's been that's been a, a real benefit to be around for me. That's um, you know just just a continual questioning of sort of what the operations you're involved in are and and why you're doing what you're doing. And we're talking about more than just a an interrogation of like the conceptual conceit of a particular project or something. We're talking about something even beyond that, correct? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, like, I don't know how you would characterize Amanda, but I, I mean, you know. Yeah, I think, well, I think what you just said is like a nice way of um, saying that I'm like a total Nazi about um, not cutting corners. Like, I cannot sleep if I don't do things the absolute best that I can and do something kind of do my best job. Right. And I demand that on my partner, too, just because that's just the type of human being I am. Um, so I guess in that way, it extends. I mean. I think both of us are conceptually driven if kind of looping it back to your kind of um, uh, comment. I think that we are, even though we are materialists, we're, um, we're both conceptually driven. And I think that um, we talk a lot about sort of foundational ideas that are kind of like at the basis of the work. And we also, I think, talk a lot about kind of always wanting to elevate the field, you know, like the idea of demanding more out of a viewer, demanding more out of the other artists that we know and care about, demanding, you know, out of the students that I work with sometimes. And, you know, just wanting the field to, in general, just always be improving and always be kind of being uh, challenging um, and, you know, expressing our disappointment when we see that not happening at at times, um, oftentimes. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, so it's beyond conceptual. I think it's a... I mean, I think we've dedicated our lives to this. And so we take it very seriously. It's like raising a kid. I'm like, this thing has to be awesome or else I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> Art baby. <laughs> Art baby. I mean, yeah, I mean, we could go down that road, but I, it feels like that. It really does. But it's, it also sounds like it's kind of an ethics of of making and playing that and, and inhabiting that role of being a maker and an artist mm-hmm. it's, there's like an ethics to it right yeah yeah and it doesn't always extend to external validation or success and we also you know have had you know uh you know we we are on that roller coaster together and we like go through those different ebbs and flows of how much the world receives that or not um but i think that you know for us it's like i know when it's when it's a good when i've done a good job and i know when he's done a good job and and that's like super important right and, and like i think all the time that's like <laughs> all the time 110 yeah. failure is not an <laughs> option no i mean i don't mean to be so um rigid like that but um yeah i just i mean that that's the aim right like that that that's the goal so as close as we can hit that mark yeah. <laughs> um and i you know i think that like yeah like i think that's the thing that we share the most of that i think is really special and really um you know magical but uh it's also hard you know it's like i guess we could talk about that too i mean there's like struggles like there are times when i'm like can we should we just go get jobs i don't know should we just like should both of us just like it'd be easier if we just did death or like you know all the the possible roads that you go down it's not easier (laughs) well and and i would say also just the constant immersion in a conversation around what you're doing can can be exhausting you know and and because especially when you're you know when, when you're in incredibly motivated to be exhaustive about it and i think that like i think that that's a thing that we've probably both learned to accommodate in our own ways, like the pace of that, you know, when you, you have two people that are constantly kind of, you know, you're dedicated to your own project and then you're dedicated to making sure that the other person is getting the most out of, out of what they're doing, you know, with their own work. So 
you know, there, there's not a whole, there's not a lot of downtime in that equation, in my opinion. And, and I think that that's something that we've adjusted to over the years as, as to how we, you know, ebb and flow with that. Yeah. So. Yeah. And there is something funny that we've said over the years too, of like, um, like, uh, equating it because we both are interested in language and we both use language and think about it as a, a point of departure or a structure that we refer to or whatever. Um, I think that I often have described it as like, I'm fluent in Eric and he is fluent, you know, like right. that's like a better way to describe it because it's like, it's like there are times when my own subjectivity and my own personal bias and my own work is like too close. And I need to be like, can you, I, and he's the next best thing because he's almost there, but it's still, you know, he's still objective, right? Um, at least one tick more objective than I can be. And, um, and that's like, that's like, uh, I think that's the thing that actually makes it totally impossible on some level for us to make work together because I think that that separation would then get a little bit muddied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that said, that. when we like make things and when we install things, I always... Uh, prefer to have him there and, and mm-hmm. likewise and vice versa yeah as well yeah 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 and we play roles in our you know in each other's work like uh like there's certain things that um you know I just feel like I, he's the person I trust the most about right so I'll say okay just come look at this for one second and and I know that he'll give me like the most straightforward even if he's like no <laughs> you know it's like I need that tough love sometimes too and vice versa and I think that that uh that's extremely beneficial and hard to cultivate. It's like something that you can't cultivate necessarily, even with a friend, because um, we're not friends. No, <laughs> not friends. <laughs> yeah, or like what? Like I was going to mention that idea of um, uh, uh, the idea of uh, mixing color. Um, can mm-hmm. I tell? Can I sure. tell? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so Eric's colorblind, <laughs> um, which I. I've always thought was an amazing thing because his actual color choices and his palette are super interesting. And I, I maybe put more weight on it than you do, but I think it, it actually results in super, super interesting, um, combinations of things. Although, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would also say that there are times when he needs to match something and I'll step in to help because I, he just like physically sometimes can't do it. And, um, cones and rods are not <laughs> cooperating. <laughs> so the things, that, the colors that he wants to, to make are always, I think, super out there and interesting. And, and I think it's a palette that you wouldn't arrive at without that like slight, uh, tick or whatever you call it. Um, so that, so I become your color, color person. Um, uh, Eric's an amazing writer, so, um, I'm all right. I do okay. And I, and I, I'd like to do it. Um, but if I need someone to edit writing, he's the best in the biz. Well, I hate to break up this love fest. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> and then, <laughs> uh, Eric, Amanda, thank you for joining oh, us. You guys people. are the best. Thank this was so much fun. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks. You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. Our theme music is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio, and do take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Yes, please. Or you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. We're going to go out with a song from Eric Frydenborg's band, Netshaker, the closing track from their 2013 LP, I'm So Cold, on Kill Shaman Records. Netshaker is a duo consisting of Frydenborg and Ernest Gibson, and you can find them on Bandcamp at netshaker.bandcamp.com. Also, uh, physical copies of that LP are available at the Hammer Museum store. And the name of the track is Car Is Over.